Hey everybody, it's me, Erica. And Rachel. And you are listening to Story Crime Podcast. Hey everyone, it's been a week and we are back. A week almost two weeks when I guess two weeks by the time this comes out but we will be back we are back now um it was crazy the week before I just could not get the episode that I wanted to do done but it is going to be worth the wait because I have quite an episode for today Rachel I'm excited and all I know is that I needed a notebook and a pen because I'm playing detective kind of I'm excited to know what this is about (laughs) hopefully our powers of deduction will be Suffice. So, guys, I'm covering a very well-known and popular case. So, a lot of my true crime uh, besties out there that know a lot about true crime are going to know this one. And we're talking about an old cold case from the 90s called the Springfield 3. The Um, Springfield 3? Yes. So, I'm sure it's ringing. It might not be ringing any bells for you, Rachel, but I'm sure it's ringing a lot of bells for a lot of people out there Um, my instant thought was on simpsons um nelson and his friends (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely not about nelson and his friends i will tell you that jimbo Uh, and who's the other guy oh shit who is the other guy nelson jimbo and it's the guy with like the bald head and the white shirt yeah um why can't i think of that guy's name I don't know. I hate it. Anyways, it's not about them. It has nothing to do. We're actually in Springfield, Missouri. Mm. Um, So, yeah. So, this happened in 1992. And it was, this is the cold case story of two teenage girls and one of the girls' mothers. They disappeared one night in 1992 and for the last 30 years have never been seen or heard from since. Whoa. So let me just give you a little backstory on Springfield. It's a very quick Wikipedia rundown that I have for you. So Springfield is the third largest city in the state of Missouri. It's nicknamed the Queen City of the Ozarks, and it's boasted as being the birthplace of Route 66. Oh, no shit. The city itself is known for its proximity to the mountainous terrain of the Ozarks, which I'm sure if anybody has Netflix... The Ozarks are very, oh, that, yeah. that name Ozark should really pop out to you. Really good show. Um, well, and it's known for its numerous outdoor recreation activities just because of how close it is to that Ozark um, area. Cool. Here's an interesting fact that I included. It is also the home base for Bass Pro Shops. And it's a Bass Pro Shops, the headquarters there, mm-hmm. is apparently the most popular tourist attraction in the in the area and in the state. What? Missouri. And uh, I know what you're thinking. store? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Because I I actually, when I go to Von Mills in Toronto, yeah, I really enjoy going nice. to the Bass Pro Shops. It's it's pretty cool in there. They've got a lot of things. But I did just take a little uh, description Wait. of what goes on there. It's the most touristy? It, the Bass Pro Shop in, like, the headquarters for Bass Pro Shop. Yeah. And it's just a store. Um, it's the most popular tourist attraction in the area of Springfield, but also one of the most popular tourist attractions in the entire state. And apparently it draws more than 4 million visitors every year. 4 million? To, Holy to visit crap. the store. So I took okay. this from my website called Choice Hotels. I just want, because I was thinking what you were thinking. I was like, why though? Like yeah. I've been there. It is cool. 
but why is this one so so awesome? So from choicehotels.com, it says, Many people go to Bass Pro Shops for outdoor gear, apparel, and gifts, but simply walking through the Springfield store is an experience unto itself. Highlights from nature like wildlife mounts, waterfalls, and seven distinct aquariums are everywhere. What? Waterfall in the store? An indoor indoor swamp features alligators and turtles, and kids love the free twice-daily fish feeding shown in Uncle Buck's auditorium. Are Sounds you like serious? This how big is this store? I don't know. I don't it sounds know. like a whole like country block. I um, think I feel like who needs to go outside when you can go to the Springfield Bass Pro Shop? The fact that like we want to go there, like yeah, no shit, four million people visit. <laughs> yeah, like it sounds really cool, actually. Because like I said at first, I was like, okay, well, I've been to a Bass Pro Mills. Like it's not like. Like, we don't have, like, alligators. No, we don't have... But so when I read that, I was like, holy shit, I kind of want to... I mean, there is a big bear. I don't think it's ever... It's real, but, like, it's obviously... It might be real. You never know. No, I feel like it's too big. I mean, if if bears are really that big in the wild, like... I'm never going in the woods. I'm I try to I'm trying to remember how big that bear is because I remember it's huge. It's like it's huge. It's like two stories, maybe like a, a story and a half. Now, according to a 2020 census, Springfield has a modest population of around 169,000. And in 1992, when our story takes place, that population was just only a little bit smaller, ringing in at about 140,000. Now, there are many job opportunities in the area, not only in the outdoor recreation space, but also in the medical field. And they've got a couple of really nice big hospitals there um, that uh, employs a lot of the population or a lot of, you know what I mean? The city. Offers a lot of employment there. So uh, there are also several well-regarded universities and post-secondary education institutions making it an ideal place for students to call home. And by Hmm. all accounts, it seems like a pretty safe place. Um, And I wanted to just like get an idea of what it was like to live there uh, now and 25, 30 years ago. So I did happen to find, I just like went on Quora and like typed in, what is it like to live in Springfield, Missouri? <laughs> so I did get, so this is taken from uh, a user on the Quora, uh, the Quora website. And it said, I've lived in Springfield for 25 years and can say most people love it. Springfield is a medium sized city, which means it ha- has most of the major retail and restaurant chains, great health facilities, university and it doesn't have the chaos of the major cities. It kind of reminds me of where I live in London. Mm-hmm. But it's I was like, just saying, thinking it, that. It's it's a city. It's got everything you need. But there's also like pockets of the city that feel like small town. Yeah. And you can still, and that's why I know for you, you like the, the hustle and bustle of the city. But for mm-hmm. me, I'm, I'm very much more of a small town person. But I needed to move to, to find employment. So this was a perfect medium for me. So um yeah so I just wanted to include that just to give you kind of a sense of of the place we're dealing with here right and where we're going when you said you did a deep dive into this case like you were not kidding you went and looked up what was it like to live in Springfield by the time I went to bed last night my eyes were like bloodshot I could not I don't know how many times I said to Rob but what about the light bulb which we'll get to you'll know exactly what I mean later I'm writing that one down that's part of my clues. What and about Rob, the light bulb? What about the light bulb? And Rob was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know enough to give. Please shut up. I'm sure there's people out there probably thinking the same thing right now. Like, yes, what about the light bulb? People who know this case, you'll see. 
So, uh, so based on that Quora response there, uh, it would seem that not much has changed in Springfield in the last 30 years since this case took place. Because of its small town feel, it was a place where everybody seemed to know each other. Neighbors looked out for one another and nobody locked their doors. But all of that would change in June of 1992 when three women disappeared without a trace. Uh-huh. Now, one detective who worked on the case he described the disappearance as if the women had been raptured and just lifted from their home and taken to heaven. The crime scene. Yeah. Well, you'll see when we get into it. It's (laughs) insane. The crime scene left very few clues and would only leave investigators with more questions than answers. The women involved in this were 47 year old Cheryl Levitt, her 19 year old daughter, Susie Streeter and Susie's friend, 18 year old Stacy McCall. It was June 6th, and the two friends had just spent their day celebrating their graduation from, do not let your inner 12-year-old laugh at this, Kickapoo Kickapoo High School. (laughs) Sorry. The inner 12-year-old won. (laughs) Yeah. I I, love that. Imagine that's your diploma, Kickapoo. (laughs) Kickapoo. I only wrote it in here once because I was like, (laughs) I'm sorry if Kickapoo means something. But it's just a funny name. Anyways, so oh, they, had right, just gradu- <laughs> they had just graduated from Kickapoo High School with their friends and loved ones before heading out to attend a few graduation parties. They had plans to go to Whitewater, a popular water park in Branson, which was Branson's like a bigger city about an hour or so away from Springfield. Okay. And that was how they were going to start their summer vacation with a splash. And I am not sorry for that pun. <laughs> but sadly, they would never make it to Branson. After, oh, no. after returning home in the early hours of the morning, both Stacy and Susie, along with Susie's mom, Cheryl, would all disappear and they would never be seen again. It's been 30 years since their disappearance and not a single trace of the women have ever been found. No way. So I want to start out by giving a little bit of background on these women. And while I don't believe that anything to do with their past really have much to do with the circumstances surrounding their disappearances, I do want to highlight who these women were in life so that they're not just remembered for being what a lot of uh, media and uh, what they're referred to a lot of times as the three MW or three missing women. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you for doing that. So I'm going to start out with Cheryl Levitt, who is Susie Streeter's mother. She was born on November 1st, 1944 in Seattle, Washington. In 1964, Cheryl would marry her first husband. And one thing I did learn about this was that she actually, before this marriage, she was married very, very briefly. Um, But there isn't really a lot of information out there about that marriage, except for that it existed and it was brief. So this was her first, I guess, long-term marriage. Um, She would marry a man named Brent Streeter, and the couple would settle down in Seattle, Washington together. In 1965, Cheryl would welcome her oldest child, a son named Bart, followed eight years later by a daughter she called Suzanne, or Susie as she was known. So Cheryl and Brent, they got divorced in 1973, shortly after the birth of Susie, and she and her daughter would relocate to Springfield at this time for kind of a fresh start. Imagine being a kid named Bart living in Springfield in the 90s. I never even considered that. (laughs) You are correct. Now, he actually, he was already grown up at this point and kind of living on his own. We'll talk more about him later, but he kind of comes and goes. And I listened to an interview with him and he said that Springfield actually never really felt like home to him. 
Fair. Yeah. Like, I mean, if he was so, older. Sure. Yeah. In 1980, Cheryl would marry for a second time to a man named Don Levitt. They would divorce in 1989 after Don kind of inexplicably left the family, leaving Cheryl with piles and piles of his debt. Now, the uh, creditors would come after her for this money, and she eventually just said, I'm not paying it on the advice of her lawyer. And she worked, she just worked extremely hard to take care of herself and Susie. And Mm -hmm. she never really gave off the impression that she was bitter or angry towards Dawn. The only impression she ever gave off was that she wanted to do what was best to put her life together so that she could give her daughter the best life she could and keep her her whole family afloat. Yeah. So she seems like a really stand up lady. Um, From that point on, it would be just Cheryl and Susie with Bart, like I said, coming in and out of the picture from time to time. Cheryl worked as a cosmetologist at a hair salon called New Attitudes in Springfield. I got a new attitude. And then you like walk out of the hair salon singing that. Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) I don't even know what song that is, but sure. What? (laughs) You'll have to tell me after. Those who knew her said that she was friendly, kind, and an all-around well-liked member of the community. Uh, She was a very excellent employee at the salon, and she had a client list of about 250 customers, loyal customers, I should say. Holy cow. Yeah. She's cutting hands, like, as quick as Edward Scissorhands, because, like, how? Cutting hands. Cutting hair. hair. Because how? how, Oh, jeez. Now, apparently, this was because she was known to send her clients Christmas cards. She would give clients calls if, like, for example, they had a loss in the family, um, you know, and she she also was known to accept checks from her clients who didn't have cash up front. So she was very like sympathetic I used to pay my hairdresser with checks. Did you? Yeah, my mom would like send me with blank checks, and I would like like signed out to them, and then like yeah. I would put the total in when I got there, or whatever when it was done. I don't remember ever paying for anything except for rent with a check. Honestly, huh. so weird. Eh? The nineties were a different time. They were, yeah. Now, in April of 1992, Cheryl would purchase a home for her and her daughter on 1717 East Delmar Street. And this is an address that would become synonymous with this case. At the time of her disappearance, Cheryl was 43 or 47 years old, sorry, with brown eyes, short bleach blonde, naturally, naturally curly hair. It was a bit longer on top, shorter in the back. She had a thin build and had freckles on her neck and upper chest area. Now, one thing that you need to remember about Cheryl. Okay, writing it down. Cheryl was a chain smoker. Okay. And she was known for being a chain smoker. The next uh, woman we're going to talk about is her daughter, Susie Streeter. So Susie was born on March 9th, 1973. And from what I was able to glean about Susie was that she was an extremely beautiful, kind, outgoing girl. She kind of gave off a bit of a rebellious attitude or I guess or had a bit of a rebellious streak and it just made her seem really cool and everything that I was reading about her I was like she just seems so cool I wish I had have known her because she just and she just looks really cool her whole like that whole uh, rebelliousness would come out in her style uh choices with like her ripped jeans and her Doc Martens and her bleach blonde hair and her hats that she would wear just really cool she actually has totally 80s has a bit of a kelly taylor look to her if you if you oh. look at her yeah um like nice her face it. yeah no she does she looks just to me looks just like her so cool. uh she had tons of friends she was flirty with boys 
She would have a couple of serious boyfriends throughout high school who we are going to talk about later. Now, Susie and her mom were extremely close, and she was eager to finish high school and embark on her life and planned on following in her mother's footsteps at pursuing a career in cosmetology and becoming oh, a hairdresser. Nice. Yeah. Now, like I said, they were extreme, her and her mother were extremely close, and even though they would have the typical mother-daughter fights that you would expect, they had a really tight bond. They, she was Susie's best friend, and Aww. she would often cancel plans with her friends and peers her own age to do, stay home and do things with her mom. Oh, that's so nice. Now, Susie's uh, high school friend, Nigel, said in, in an interview that no matter what time it was, whenever Susie got home from work or hanging out with friends, she would always go to her mother's room, wake her up, and kiss her goodnight. And that's important to kind of important to remember. She was an extreme creature of habit. At the time of her disappearance, Susie was 19 years old. She weighed approximately 102 pounds. She had brown hair, or sorry, brown eyes and straight bleach blonde hair cut to shoulder length. And she had a three and a half inch scar on her right forearm and a small tumor. She was born with a small tumor in the left corner of her mouth, which kind of gave the appearance that she always had like something like a piece of gum in her teeth or you know what I mean yeah and lastly we are going to talk about Stacy McCall she was born on April 23rd 1974 her parents were Janice and Stu McCall and she was the youngest of three girls Mm -hmm. as a teenager she worked as a receptionist for the Springfield Gymnastics Club and modeled uh, for a local bridal shop I think the the shop was owned by a friend of the family so she would model the dresses and be featured in uh, print ads. Oh yeah. yeah, it would be. Now, her mother, Janice, who has been a driving force in this case for the last 30 years, she described Stacy as a pretty busy kid growing up. She was always helping others and just loved having fun. She was really popular and well-liked and beautiful. She had a large group of friends at Kickapoo High School and had inspir- uh, aspirations to attend university with her best friend, Janelle Kirby, in the coming fall. Mm-hmm. At the time of her disappearance, Stacy was 18 years old and weighed approximately 120 pounds. She had blue eyes, dark blonde hair to the middle of her back with sunlight and ends. She had freckles on her face and a dimple in the middle of her chin. Hmm. Now, you might read in a lot of sources about this case that Stacy and Susie were best friends and mm-hmm. childhood best friends, but that actually wasn't the case. They had known each other since they were kids. Um, but Stacy's best friend was actually a young girl named Janelle Kirby. Janelle and Stacy had grown up next door to each other in Battlefield, Missouri, which is kind of like a suburb just on the outside of Springfield. Yeah. Janelle and Stacy would meet Susie in second grade, and the three girls would would be extremely close during that time until Stacy's family moved away to Wichita briefly when she was about eleven years old. Okay. By the time that Stacy moved back to Springfield, the girls had all kind of grown apart, but Janelle. Janelle and Stacy would rekindle their close friendship. And Janelle was still kind of friends with Susie through this time. So she was kind of like the glue that held the group together in, yeah, in a yeah. sense. Um, so, yeah. So Susie was best friends with a girl named Nigel Holderby. Susie and Nigel ran with a different crowd. It's either Nigel or Nigel. I apologize if I'm saying that incorrectly. I can't remember right now. And I did mm. look it up. Um, but they did kind of run, ran with a different crowd than Stacy and Janelle. Stacy was more of your typical all-American girl and lived her life on the more or less straight and narrow. She, you know, didn't drink. She didn't 
party too hard. She would attend parties, but really keep it keep Free it easy. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Susie, she kind of hung around with a more rebellious crowd. Not that Susie was a bad kid. Susie, she definitely wasn't. But the the you know she would date the bad boys. Yeah, if, if, you know what I mean. That kind of thing is is the impression I got. I obviously don't know them, but from when I researched, that kind of was the feeling I was getting there. Yeah. That being said, leading up to graduation, Stacy and Susie would rekindle their friendship and make plans with Janelle Kirby to meet up on the night of graduation to attend some parties. And then the three girls planned to actually that night make the hour drive to Branson, stay in a hotel, and then head to the Whitewater Water Park in Branson the next morning. Now, I'm going to give you guys a timeline of June 6th, the day of graduation. Okay. Okay. I'm writing that down in my detective book. Yes. June 6th. That is the day that, ever, that this kind of everything sort of starts to kick off. So the day started out with celebration. Stacy and Susie attended their graduation ceremonies with their families. That graduation, it wrapped up at around 6 p.m. Stacy invited Susie and Cheryl to go out for dinner with her family, but they declined and, and instead decided to go home and have pizza, just the two of them. So Susie and Stacy, they made plans to meet back up later at Janelle Kirby's home in Battlefield. And at some uh, at some point, Susie's best friend, Nigel, she turns up at Susie's house with her boyfriend and a cake for a friend. Everything seems normal at this point. Nothing is amiss. Everybody's happy enjoying themselves. It was a great right. day. The girls drove, uh, so Stacy and Susie, they drove separately to Janelle's house and they arrived there at about 815 they attended a party at the home of a classmate named Brian Joy, and they left his party at around 1030. And this is when Stacy and Susie decide that they don't want to drive to Branson that night. Okay. Switching so in, up the plans. Yes. So instead, they want to stay in town. They call Stacy's mom. She lets her know. She lets, Stacy lets her mom know that they're going to be staying at Janelle's house yeah. that night instead. Okay. Instead of driving all the way to Branson, which... Stacy's mom says, you know, great. Perfect idea. Perfect idea. I don't want you driving that late at night anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a good change of plan. And Stacy promised her mother that she would call her in the morning before they left for the water park. So after that phone call, the girls attend another party and then they return to Janelle's house. Janelle's mother has laid out a pallet for the two girls to sleep on. But another change up in plans here happens because... Janelle has most of her family lived outside of Springfield. Mm-hmm. So they were all staying at Janelle Kirby's house. And Stacy and Susie thought that they would be more comfortable if they were to stay at Susie's house because oh. her mom had just bought her a king size waterbed for a graduation oh, present. Hell yes. <laughs> a waterbed. My like... friends had one. No, um, my babysitter had one, and when they would force us to have naps, it was like a, a fight who got the waterbed. Oh, <laughs> I think you were going to say it was like a party. <laughs> like a party. No, my parents had one um, for a lot of our childhood. They, My mom said, like, it was cool and trendy to have one, but they were extremely uncomfortable. Oh, like, yeah, like, your back hurt for sure. Yeah. And not to mention, like, any small motion, then you, like, set off a wave ripple that lasted five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so so the girls decide that they're going to go and they're going to sleep at Susie's house. Um, and they arrange to, like, they set up plans with Janelle to meet back at her home in the morning so that they can all go to Branson together. Okay. 
Now they leave there at around 2.15 and the drive from Janelle's house to Susie's house, it's roughly 15 minutes. And okay. Stacy and Susie, they take separate cars because they both drove there separately. So they both take their cars and they go to Susie's house. Okay. So, and Janelle's mother remembers hearing the girls discussing these plans. Right. Right. So she, she gave a statement later that said, yes, I heard them say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Now, it's believed that the girls made it to the Levitt Streeter residence at roughly 2.30 a.m. that morning, but the exact time that they arrived home isn't exactly known. Okay. The only thing we do know for sure is that they did make it there as both Stacy and Susie's cars were parked in the circle driveway in front of the house. Okay. So just to give you, just so you know, it, the house is a bungalow type. It has a carport on the side. There's a straight driveway that goes like up on along the right side of the house that goes right into the carport. Yeah. Um, on the left side of the house, there's like a circle drive that meets that straight driveway. Okay. That goes in through the front yard, basically. I'll put up pictures so you guys can kind of see. Susie's car was parked in the front, in, like right in front of the front door in the circle drive. And Stacy's was parked right behind her. Cheryl Lovett's car was in the carport beside the okay. home. All three of them should be there. All three cars are in the driveway the mm-hmm. next morning. Now, like I said, nothing is known what ha- about what happened from the point that the girls park their cars and enter the house. But in the events that take place the following morning, we can glean a few things. And those things are that the girls definitely made it inside. Okay. They definitely changed out of their clothes. And they definitely washed their faces. Hmm. Okay. Now, before we move on to the next... Sorry, go ahead. Nope. Looked like you had a question. Nope. Just processing. Like, I was going to be like, how did they know? But obviously, there'd be, like, at best, evidence of a face wash, you know? So, Yeah. Yes, and we're going to talk about that soon. So before we move on to the next morning where we're going to talk about all that stuff, I do want to just give a brief overview about what we know for sure about Cheryl Levitt's evening that that night when the girls were out. Okay. So remember, Cheryl Levitt is Susie Streeter's mother. So after Susie leaves the house, it's reported that Cheryl, she received a phone call at a friend. I read different times and different sources I did read in some that it was at 9.30 p.m., but in a lot of sources, so I, I'm leaning more towards this time, it's at 11.15 p.m. Okay. So she tells her friend that she's spending the evening refinishing a dresser and putting up wallpaper in the home. According to this friend, who ended up, I, I found out later, was her best friend, Val, who is a very close friend, basically family, I guess, to the streeters. Yeah. So according to her, there didn't seem to be anything amiss, and Cheryl seemed completely normal during the phone call. And she was home by herself. There was no one else there. She didn't talk about, apparently, having expecting anyone else to show up at the right. house, any of that. Now, this is the last time that anyone would hear from Cheryl Levitt. And like I said, there's no way to know what happened in the home after this call, or if Cheryl was even awake when the girls came home that evening. Oh, okay. Right? I also want to note here that Cheryl and Susie, they do have a small dog called Cinnamon, who's also in the home. Okay. Like a small terrier type of dog. Sure. Now, on the morning of June 7th, 1992, Janelle Kirby, uh, she gets up in the morning and she starts calling Susie Streeter's house looking for Susie and Stacy. Mm-hmm. 
She wants to know what time they were planning on coming back to her place to drive to Branson. She gets no answer and she tries calling several times. And at least during one of those times, she leaves a message on the answering machine. Right. At around 9 a.m., after not hearing from her friends, Janelle and her boyfriend, Mike, they decide that they are going to go to Susie's home. They're just at this point assuming that the girls have overslept. Yeah. Let's go wake their asses up. Yeah. When Janelle and Mike arrive, they notice that both Susie and Stacy's car are in the circle driveway and that Cheryl's car is in the carport. This signals to them that, okay, they must be in the house. They probably did oversleep. Mm -hmm. Now, the first strange thing they notice, and to them at this point, keep in mind, it's not strange. It's just like, oh, that happened. Like, that's weird. Yeah. Not even that's weird. It's just like, okay, that's there. Is that the glass, um, what do you call it? The globe that covers the uh, porch light is shattered on the ground. Now, Janelle was, and it's all in front of the front door on the porch. Right. So they're probably thinking, what the heck? Yeah. So Janelle, she, uh, because they're going to the water park, she was barefoot. So her boyfriend, Mike. She was real prepared. Yeah. He grabs the broom and dustpan and sweeps up the glass. He takes the dustpan and he dumps the shards over the fence into a neighboring alley behind the business that is right next door to the Streeter house. Right. Nice of him, although he just swept up evidence. Right. Now, they also noticed that the light bulb is a broken. Was that what about the light bulb? What about the light bulb? So the light bulb's not broken, but the globe around the light bulb is. Right. Which is easily done. I hit my head on that stupid globe above my kitchen. Oh, dear. With the broom all the time or with, yeah. Okay. It's annoying. So... Janelle and Mike, they're they're at the door. They knock a few times. They don't get any answer. So they try the doorknob and the door is unlocked. So they Wait, go in. hold on. They were not inside. How did he get a dustpan? They, what I, because I was wondering that too at first. It was just on the porch. Oh. Yeah, I keep a, what I a- keep a broom and dustpan on my balcony. That kind of, you know what I mean? So she, they just had one on the porch. So he just grabbed it and okay. swept it up. I guess. You keep your du- broom and dustpan on a balcony? I have one that's for inside, and I have one on my balcony. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. yeah. For an outside one. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So they knock a few times. They don't get any answer. So they try the doorknob and find that the door is unlocked. They go inside, and they start calling out for their friends. And the first thing that strikes them as really odd is that the family dog, Cinnamon, starts barking at them and is acting extremely anxious and wanting to be picked up. Uh-oh. They what said did that- Cinnamon see? They said that it wasn't like the dog was barking just simply because they were there, like yeah. a lot of dogs do. It 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 was clear that the dog was kind of on edge about yeah, something. Yeah, like he'd been through some shit. Yeah. Uh-oh. They took a look around and they noticed that all three of the women's purses were all lined up neatly near the two little stairs that led down to Susie's bedroom. What? So Susie's room, what I kind of understood, and I could be wrong, so please correct me, anyone who who has more information on this, is that where the carport was used to be part of a garage, and they had made a room back there out of the rest of the garage. Oh. So there were some steps that led down from the main house into Susie's bedroom. Oh, okay. And all of the purses, so Cheryl's purse, Stacy's, yeah. and Susie's purse were all lined up. And I think Stacy's purse was sitting on top of Susie's overnight bag that probably had been packed to go to Whitewater the next day. Right. But that's, is it like them to line up their purses like that? It's kind of weird. 
it's it it's it is to me that's kind of weird. If it were just Susie and Stacy's purse in Susie's sure, yeah. bedroom, I'd be like, okay. They but the fact that that the mum's purse, why is yeah. that in there too? The purses are a whole thing. Trust me. I'm writing it. You're down. gonna be like, what? Uh yeah. So they also noticed that the TV was on and it was kind of like on the static channel, like almost oh like, my you know, God. like can you get any creepier? Right. It was like, so I heard one person describe it as like, almost like they had fallen asleep watching a, a, a videotape on a VCR. And you remember when the, your tapes used to go off? Yeah. And it'd be just like, Shh. Yeah. And then you wake right. up in the sleepover like, oh God. Yeah. Sure so that's not. in another, I forget which, there's a bunch of podcasts on this. There's one really good one I'm going to put in the show notes that for a really, really deep dive, um, everybody should check out. So I'm going to make sure it's in there. I'll say it at the end. Uh, but yeah, so the TV was on, Snow Channel. Janelle was like, weird. But Susie was known for falling asleep to the TV, so not that weird. Right. Now, what struck Janelle is odd, because all of this isn't odd yet. Yeah. But no, I'm sure she's the odd part. This is very odd, was that both Cheryl and Susie's cigarettes and lighters were left with their purses. Okay. Hmm. This was strange because Cheryl was a notorious chain smoker. Like, she didn't even go to yeah. another room without her smokes yeah I you get me down. you get me in my thingy yes. my, my, my vape thing i don't smoke anymore but i use my vape thing and honestly i'm probably more addicted to that because i didn't chain i didn't smoke the way i do when i use this vape thingy yeah um i wasn't a chain smoker but i totally get that you don't feel comfortable going anywhere without it it's an addiction right so yeah you and check so that. that's real bad what's that <laughs> you should check that Check like, what? Like, check, check myself. My, check myself before I wreck myself. <laughs> yeah, I probably should. Um, so, yeah, so Cheryl, her cigarettes were still there. So Janelle was like, what? Where yeah. would they have gone without their cigarettes? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So Janelle and Mike decide that they're going to leave at this point. Still not quite sure what they are dealing with, but just as they are getting ready to leave, the phone rings. So Janelle decides to answer the phone, thinking, okay, well, maybe this is one of them calling their own house. This is like the script of a horror movie. Right. The static TV, the cigarettes left behind, then the phone rings. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So she thinks it's going to be them saying, okay, we just had to run out, you know, grab something. I don't know where they thought maybe they were going without their purses or whatever, but yeah, who knows? So she answers the phone and there's a man on the end of the phone. Okay. And he is saying very sexually explicit things into it, into the receiver. What? So Janelle hangs up and she's like, ooh, gross. And she starts to leave again. And she's but just also, assuming, this is like 9 a.m. Yeah. Who's calling saying sexual things at 9 a.m.? Just saying. It's the 90s. Maybe somebody's super bored. Who knows? <laughs> <It> was- <laughs> yeah. So she's assuming at this point it's a prank call. And then as they're getting ready to leave, the phone rings again, and when she answers it, it's the same guy. So she's like, gross, hangs up the phone and leaves with her her boyfriend. And as far as I could tell, Janelle and Mike would come back several times to the house to see if they're there. And then yeah. they actually don't end up going to Branson. They end up staying in Springfield and going to a local water park or a big water slide that's there instead. Okay. Uh, just so they can keep checking in on Stacy and Susie, I hope. Anyways, but... Uh, sometime later, and I don't have the exact time here, but Jan- Janice McCall, who is Stacy's mom, she starts to get worried because she hadn't heard from Stacy that morning. And right. Stacey, yeah, because Stacy had said she's going to call in the morning to yeah. let her know 
that they were on their way or whatever. Yeah. So Janice calls Janelle Kirby's home because that's where she believed that Stacy was staying the night before because she never let her know she was going Stacey to Stacy never told her mom that she was going to that Susie. That she was going to Susie's. Okay. Right. She asked Can you, her, next time you say Stacy's mom, can you sing it? Has got it going on? Yeah. <laughs> can you just. I've been down Stacey's that hole. Mom. <laughs> called and. <laughs> yeah. So she called Janelle Kirby's house, asked her if her daughter was there. And Janelle Kirby's mom was like, no, like they didn't stay here last night. She stayed at Susie Streeter's house. Janice didn't have the phone number because Susie and Cheryl had just moved into that house in April and we're only in June. So she ended up doing some sleuthing of her own and she ended up getting the phone number. Um, And she calls and calls, but doesn't get an answer, of course, because we know nobody's there. Mm -hmm. So she decides to also go over to the house and check things out. So just like Janelle, she arrives to find all three cars in the driveway, the door unlocked. When she gets inside, she sees the dog, who's still acting a little funny uh, and still appearing anxious. And for some reason, Janelle didn't shut the TV off, so that was still going. And Hmm. the, (laughs) the girl's purses and cigarettes are there. And, of course, she knows that Cheryl is a chain smoker. And so that was, like, another, just for her, like, that light bulb went off in her head of, like, this is weird. What's going on? Right? If that phone rang... I'm going to, I'm going to (laughs) cry. She continues to look around the house for any sign of, you know, where her daughter and the other women could have gone. And this is when she notices that Stacy's clothes from the day before are neatly folded and placed on like near the bed on top of her sandals. Okay. So that she'd gone to bed. She's like wearing jammies. Right. So this leads Janice to believe that Stacy, that if Stacy left that house in the morning, that she had done so. In just a t-shirt and underwear. As she had nothing else with her. Right. Okay. Shit. Um, and at one point the police ask her like, is there any chance that she could have borrowed Stacy's or Susie's clothes? And Stacy and Susie did not wear the same size. They wouldn't have. Oh, okay. Susie's clothes wouldn't have fit her. So, um, yeah. So, anyway. So, she had no other clothing with her. And she also sees that there are wet washcloths in like the bin. And these washcloths have makeup on them. Yeah. So that's how we know they took their makeup off. Um, And I I believe that Stacy's jewelry was also tucked into the pockets of the shorts that were left behind as well. Okay. So she's getting ready for bed. She's getting ready for bed. So we know that they made it home and they at least got ready for bed. Now, I believe at this point is when Janice decides to take a closer look in the purses just to see if there's any information in there that she can get as to what's going on here. And the first thing she notices is that Stacy's migraine medication was left in the purse and Stacy suffered from severe migraines and would go nowhere without this medication because it could her. come on. Yeah. yeah. It could go, come on at any second. If she didn't have those meds, she would be fucked. Mm-hmm. So mom was like, okay, that's weird. And then she looks inside Cheryl Levitt's purse and inside Cheryl Levitt's purse is $900 in cash. Oh. Okay. So now she's, now she's like, the cigarettes are here and there's $900 in cash here. What is happening? She started to feel like at this point, like something's definitely wrong yeah. with this scene. So she, she, she notices that the answering machine is flashing, uh, indicating that there's some unheard messages on there. So she checks the messages to see if there are any clues about anything. 
And she hears a message that Janelle left earlier. And of course, there's her, she had left messages herself. But one thing did strike her as particularly like made her uneasy. And that was that there was an unknown man saying very sexually explicit things. So he had no shame. He just left it on the answering machine. Now, unfortunately, they've never said they've never released publicly what exactly was said in these messages. And somehow, you know, remember, this is 1992. Those messages got deleted. They did. And there was no way to retrieve them. It was like a cassette tape sort of machine. Well, who would have deleted it? Now, I'm not clear on this because it's different everywhere, and it obviously was an honest mistake by whoever deleted it because it's such important, yeah. an important piece of message. Well, and remember what those answering machines were like. Like, you could just hit boom, and they're like, message deleted. Exactly. No! No! <laughs> now, like I said, I wasn't clear if it got deleted while Janice was listening to the messages or if this happened after the police arrived and had listened to it. But either way, that message was deleted. And everyone who knows what this caller says either claims they can't remember what they said. They they say, like, oh, it was so gross. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was disgusting. Right. I, I started That's thinking. Like, what's hmm. that? Oh, go on. Well, I was going to say, I started thinking about this and I was like, I wonder if they're being very tight lipped about that message because it's something that only that caller and the people who heard that message would know. So if they released it to the public, Mm. then everyone would know. And it would be like, anyone could call and say that was them. But maybe maybe. I just got too deep in this. Maybe I'm thinking too much. It's a really good point, though. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just my little theory. I had a lot of these. I'm going to talk about them at the end because <laughs> I went my brain wet places. So Janice started calling around to friends and acquaintances to see if they had heard anything from the girls. And remember, this is before cell phones and the internet. So she mm-hmm. is literally going through like Cheryl's address books, Stacy's address books from home, Susie's address books, looking for any numbers she can call to get a hold of these people. And nobody had heard from them. Uh, one of the visitors to the house that day, they actually ended up because now Keep in mind, a lot of people started coming to the house after Janice called them. Yeah. Uh, keep that in mind for later. So one of the visitors to the house that day, they noticed that the blinds in Susie's room, they had had some of like the panels, the blinds were shut, but some of the panels were moved. Like somebody was standing up and looking out the window okay. and they had kind of stayed like that. Now, when Susie's best friend, Nigel Holderby arrived at the scene, she is immediately struck by where Susie's car is parked. Like I said, Susie is a creature of habit. She always came home and kissed her mom goodnight. And there were a few other things that she always, always did. She would only park in the circle drive if her mom wasn't home because she didn't want to block her mom out of the car part or if somebody else was at the house. Okay. So the fact that Susie's car is in that circle driveway shows Nigel anyway, and this is just her theory on it is that either Cheryl wasn't there or somebody else was parked behind Cheryl. Hmm. Okay. The other theory about this is that uh, Cheryl was, remember I said, refinishing a dresser. They wondered if maybe the dresser was outside when they came home because she had been refinishing it outside, perhaps. There's no evidence of this, but this is one thing that came up. So maybe Susie parked in the circle drive and then helped her mom bring it inside after and then just said, forget it, I'll leave my car there. We don't know. All Mm. we know for sure is that Susie's car 
was not in the place that she normally parked it's at. Never, yeah, and she would never yeah. park there normally. Right. Now, the last theory is that Susie, of course, just parked her car in the driveway willy-nilly and was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to park here. And that's... Yeah, because we're leaving in the morning anyway. Yeah. So that's the last... I mean, to me, that's probably the most likely theory, but... Right. Eventually... But we Jan- don't know her, so... Yeah, we don't know. We, exactly. Exactly. Now, eventually, Janice would call the police, but at this this was a time when 911 was really, really new to Springfield. It had just been put mm-hmm. in, and it was really stressed on the community to only use it for emergencies, and Janice was hesitant to call the emergency line and had said in interviews that at this point, she was like... I don't think it's an emergency at this point. Right. I think at any answers. Right. She thinks at any moment they're going to walk through the door. Um, And it wouldn't be until about 9 PM that night that the police actually arrive at the scene. And by that point, 18 people had made their way in and out of that house. No. So you know what that means? That That crime scene destroyed. And they had cleaned things up, moved things around the glass from the globe around or the, Yeah. yeah, That's gone. Compromised. This investigation was difficult straight from second one. Yeah. Okay. So if everybody's following along, still with me, um, we're going to start talking about the early stages of the investigation into this dis- these disappearances now. Okay. Now, Officer Rick Bookout was the responding officer that night. When he arrived at the scene, he said the first thing he remembered was smelling the very thick stench of furniture varnish. Oh, right, because mom was doing it. Doing the dresser. Mm-hmm. Which tells me that maybe the dresser wasn't in the driveway. That she was doing no, it inside. it would have been inside, yeah. She, unless she like left the can open or the paintbrush somewhere. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Say that. Every time I think I got something, it flips. <laughs> Even like small things like that, right? Where I'm like, okay, yeah. well, that could be why the car was there. But then yeah. I, I I pick something up and I'm like, no, that can't work. Huh. Anyways, so he also noticed that there was a lot of people inside the house. And amongst those people were Stu and Janice McCall, Janelle Kirby and her boyfriend, Mike. So Officer Bookhouse, he starts taking statements first from Stacy's parents and then Janelle. And he takes a look around noticing many of the same, you know, strange things that the rest of the visitors to the house that day had noticed. Mm-hmm. He notices the purses, the cigarettes, the dog, the washcloths, etc. Um, Bookout, of course, thought, okay, we've got two young girls. Maybe they've just gone out and they're having fun somewhere. Maybe mom's off doing something with someone. And Janice McCall, Stacy's mom, replies, well, mom's with their makeup on. <laughs> well, she goes, if that's the case, then Stacy is out living her best life in just her underwear. Yeah. <laughs> she has no but other also, clothes. Two young girls are not going to take their makeup off and then go out. Like, right. that's just not what high school girls do. Right. So he remembers that evening thinking to himself, I wish that that little dog could talk. <laughs> yeah, I, really. Same officer book out. Like, why are you not same. Wishbone or yeah. uh, Salem? Some exactly. sort of talking animal. I've been trying to get my cats to talk. They just won't. They don't speak English. Anyways, <laughs> Officer Brian Galt was the second, I think, Galt or Goat. I'm going to say Galt because if it's Goat, yeah. Okay. Officer <laughs> Brian Galt, he was the second officer on the scene that night. And once all of the visitors at the house had kind of cleared out, so they had shooed them away, basically, they started to take an inventory of what they knew for sure, which was, of course, three women are missing. Mm -hmm. They left their purses, money, keys, vehicles, all of that behind. 
Stacy had left her medication. Susie and Cheryl left her their cigarettes, and the dog was left unattended. The women had apparently left after getting ready for bed, meaning that they were in their pajamas and presumably barefoot. From what they could see and from what the visitors to the house that day had reported, the house was completely undisturbed, meaning that however they left the house, they did it without a struggle. Okay. By the early morning hours of June 8th, 1992, the officers came to the conclusion that something very bad was happening here and that foul play was more than likely the cause. Uh-oh. And an official missing persons report was filed. Bookout and Galt, along with the McCalls, left the house that night and Officer Bookout locked the front door of the house and he left a note on the door that said, if you come home, we've got your keys. Yeah. Come to the police station. So Do not enter. Yeah. Well, not even that. It's, we've got your keys. Come to the police yeah. station. We'll give it to you. That way they know for sure that they've come home. They can Smart. take a statement from them about what happened and they can close the case. Yeah. David Asher would become the lead investigator on the case and quickly got to work trying to figure out exactly what happened to these three women who all seemed to have no criminal history or connections to crime or anything nefarious in their past that would warrant them just taking off or, you know, somebody Nothing abducting them for, for a particular reason. Yeah. So missing person posters, they were made and distributed across the entire city of Springfield. And in fact, if you go to Springfield today, you might still see some of those posters taped to windows at local businesses that have never taken them down. Wow. Oh my God. How chilling. Yeah. Search warrants were obtained to search the house, but because of all the people that were in the house the previous day, it was an extremely difficult process to rule out all of those people as suspects. They did. They had to individually check each and every one of the, so all of those people were fingerprinted. They went through and dusted the entire house, cross-referenced, were able to rule out all those fingerprints as maybe not suspects or you know what I mean? Like they were able to they say were like, friends and family that they were there that day. Yeah. And that's why their fingerprints are in that house. As far as they could tell at this point, it was a daunting task, but they, they did oh, get I it bet. done. Now the house was described as being meticulously neat and t- uh, tidy, except for the few things that seemed to be out of place. However, investigators, they didn't really elaborate on what those things were, but I'm guessing it's the purses and the cigarettes and, and that kind of stuff. That was left behind. Yeah. Uh, Soon media outlets were notified of the disappearances and the story was picking up nationwide traction. It blew up really quickly. And that was because a certain media outlet just happened to be on site filming for a different case. No way. While this was unfolding. And that was 48 Hours Mystery. (gasps) Who was in town. Like I said, they were filming for a different episode altogether. And so they caught wind of this and they immediately sent a crew out to interview friends and family and community members that knew anything about this. Wow. That's the show where they like solved the crime in 48 hours. No, that's, um, that's the first 48. 48 hours mystery is like Keith Morrison dateline. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So they would end up actually tracking down Susie's biological father, Brent Streeter, who, he had, after Cheryl Levitt and Brent Streeter got divorced after Susie was born, he had nothing to do with the family. But somehow oh, wow. 48 Hours had tracked him down in the very early stages of the investigation into this. And he refused to talk to them, but he did shout out, you need to look into Bart. Which we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But 
you'll see, like, if you watch that episode of 48 Hours, which I did, it's not great quality, but it's out there. Um, they really, 48 Hours really spins this that, like, Stacy was wrong place, wrong time. And this whole thing has something to do with Cheryl and Susie. Wow. And isn't that Bart's dad? It's Bert's dad, but this man had nothing to do with the kids' lives growing up. So the fact that he yells, you need to look into Bart. Don't throw your son under the bus. True. But at the same time, like, he doesn't even know Bart. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, even when I was watching it, because I knew that was coming. But even when I watched it, I was like, who the fuck are you, Brent Streeter? Good luck. Yeah. Get bent. Yeah. Fucking hell. Anyways. Now, many people in the community, they actually criticized local law enforcement for the amount of access that they allowed 48 hours to have while in the early stages of these of the investigation. So, like, they were in because they, what we'll find out is that lie detector tests were being done with people closest to the, the, the three missing women to yeah. rule out certain potential suspects and people of interest. And 48 hours was, like, in the room filming this. Oh, wow. So what happened to the show that they were supposed to be there for? I don't know. I don't even know what show that was. Honestly, (laughs) I didn't even look into that. I should. You know what? Never mind. We're going this (laughs) angle instead. Yeah. Now, after the airing of the 48 hours episode, as well as um, some of the other media broadcasts about this, tips started coming in by the dozen and every lead was supposedly followed up on according to law enforcement. And honestly, like. It really did, from what I could, like, glean from what I was reading in the re- my research, that they really were following up on almost everything that they wow. could. Uh, just what? because they were so perplexed by it. They just couldn't understand yeah. like, where one second they were there and the next second they were gone. They just disappeared into thin air, right? Um, so, like I said, the police were leaving no stone unturned. They were going, they were doing ground and aerial searches and they were use, utilizing every re- resource that they had, including calling the FBI, oh, who shoot. arrived in Springfield on June 9th, just two days after they went missing. Wow. Which That's pretty quick response for the FBI. Well, and you, in a lot of these cases, local law enforcement, you often hear that they don't want to call the FBI. They want to yeah. handle it on their own. So uh, the fact that they called them in after two days shows you that they knew this was very serious. So did anybody collect and fingerprint the light bulb globe? No, I don't think they could. As far as I could tell, they were never able to get it. Unless that's another piece of evidence that they're holding like close to the chest. Yeah. Because right? like, how did that break? Exactly. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> I want to know how that bulb? broke. <laughs> I have scrutinized photos where I'm like, but look, there's no, there's no cover on the light bulb in this photo. So why was that thing there? Yeah. Who's to say that that actually was their light bulb thing? Anyways. How was it even a light bulb globe? How does everybody know that it was a globe? And how come the light bulb isn't broken, people? If you break well, the globe, why isn't the light bulb broken? You can easily broken? break the globe without the light bulb. I, like, that's why that one's bare. But it's... How did that well, one in your living room break? Because I smashed the globe. With how? like a broom handle or something. Because, like, when you're, like, sweep, like, it just smashed. Yeah, like, I hit it on accident. Or something. I don't know what I hit that with. But, yeah, definitely smashed. I remember. Okay. Big breaking. But the thing is, if it never had a globe to begin with, then it could have been any source of glass. I can't even think about the globe anymore. There's a part of me that went on thinking it was a red herring, but it still, it perplexes me. 
<laughs> now, so they arrived, the FBI arrived on June 9th, just two days after the women disappeared, and law enforcement was already starting to compile a potential, sus- uh, a list of potential suspects and looking into the numerous tips coming in from the public. Um, one tip that was looked into really early on was the sighting of a green van. Uh, a woman in Springfield said that she saw this van pull into her driveway to turn around. She told investigators that she believed the driver of the van matched the description of Susie Streeter and that the the girl driving looked upset, like she had been crying. And that she, and she just stole that van for her getaway? No, she said the woman oh. said that she could hear a man in the back of the van tell her to drive and not to do anything stupid. What? Which I'm like, how did she hear that? How did you hear all of that with the windows down? Was he screaming? Because that's not a very and this good was way apparently to go about at, things. Right. And apparently this was at like four or five in the morning. I don't know. So I mean the the streets would be pretty silent. She just happens to be outside as this man screaming with open windows. And he does it in front of this woman who just happens to be in her front yard while this van is pulling and turning around in the drive. I don't know. So many weird, weird things in this case. Yeah. Now, the police did take this tip seriously, and they ended up getting a van that matched the description of what the woman had recalled. They painted this van green and left it parked in front of the police station, hoping that it would generate more tips. Now, another another tip did come in from a paper boy that was delivering papers in the area that morning who said he saw a van that looked like that, but it was brown. How would painting the van and leaving it in the... How would that generate more tips? Maybe jog somebody's memory. Oh, oh, my buddy has a van like that. And he just left town unexpectedly. Uh, that kind of thing, right? Um, now, later on, there was also a tip called in about a transient man seen around the neighborhood where Susie and Cheryl lived. A composite sketch was generated and distributed to the public. And I'm going to post the sketch up. It straight up looks like Tom Hanks from Castaway um, <laughs> after he's been on the island for a while. So if this was actually the guy that was responsible, all he would need to do is get a good shower and a shave and you'd be virtually yeah. unrecognizable. Yeah. I'm telling you, this is a movie. Like, this is yeah. a plot of a movie. So I'm going to post that picture because it's just like, this is Joe Nobody with the wind <laughs> yeah. the hair and the, the beard is. Like, that could be literally anyone if they shave their beard. Um, it could be me wearing a disguise, <laughs> essentially, right? Right. Um, another tip that came in was from a cl- clerk at a local convenience store. He stated that he had actually seen Stacy and Susie between 10.30 and 11 p.m. that night on June 6th. He said they had come into the store, bought a few items, and then they left in separate cars. He also stated that one of the girls left with a man. He said when the girls left in their separate cars that they drove in opposite directions. And then later that night at about 1.30, Cheryl Levitt came in. And he said that she poked her head in the door and said, have you seen my daughter and her two friends? He said, nah, man, I haven't seen them. And she was like, okay, bye. And just left. And I don't know. I don't know if I believe this kid. He's like, looks like he's about 17, 18. I don't know if he's just wanting to be involved. But um, Susie and Stacey's friends, like Janelle Kirby, who was at the parties with them and, and other people who had seen them that night, said absolutely not. Like they were at the party. Right. With us, they never left. So that yeah. couldn't have been them. Um, as for Cheryl Levitt poking her head in, I mean, I maybe that's why that. maybe that's why Susie was parked in the circle drive. Cheryl Levitt had gone to the grab and go to see if her kid had been there. I, I really Weird. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, he seems a little bit weird, so I, I don't know if his, he's accurate or if he's misremembering or he's just trying to, you know, get his coincidentally minutes. saw all three victims or yeah. missing women. Exactly. So lastly, a woman who worked as a uh, server at a local diner said that she saw the three women come into the restaurant between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. that morning with three men, and she believed <sighs> that those women were Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl. That could be, because they were getting ready for bed, get abducted, go to IHOP. But why go somewhere local where people are going to recognize the women if you're trying to abduct them? That I don't know. Yeah. Now, we're going to move on and talk about some suspects that came up here. And as with any investigation like this, family members and close friends of the victims are generally looked into first to rule them out. They're the closest people to to the crime right? Mm-hmm. As far as I could tell, neither of Cheryl's ex-husbands were ever considered really seriously as persons of interest, but really in this case, nobody could be ruled out as a person of interest because they just don't have a clue of what happened, right? Right, right. Um, but they weren't, I mean, I think they got in contact with them. Don Levitt was really hard to find because he was really dodging Johnny Law because he owed a lot of money to a lot of people. <laughs> um, remember I said he left her inexplicably with a pile of debt? Yeah. So um, they did, I think, right. And I did think that they were able to get a hold of him, but neither Brent Streeter or Don Levitt really had any contact with Cheryl or her kids after their divorce. And Cheryl's son, Bert, would confirm this later in interviews that there was no contact, yeah, more or less, between her. And so, and and I, I just think there's better people that they looked into for this than those that had... I mean, nobody that had a, a good reason, because there's never a good reason to do this, but would have more at stake, I guess. Sure. Yeah, more now, motive. Right. So Bert Streeter, he was immediately looked into as a person of interest, because he he kind of had a troubled relationship with his family over the years, and was often referred to as the black sheep of the family. Bart, who was eight years older than Susie, he was an uh, alcoholic or binge drinker, he said in an interview. He said he wasn't drinking every day, but he did struggle with binge drinking. Once he got okay. going, he didn't stop. Yeah. Um, and he was really struggling with his addiction during this time and, you know, the years and the months leading up to the disappearance of his sister and mother. Uh, Bart had become more or less estranged from the family, but at some point he had returned to Springfield to reconcile with his mother and sister. Susie would end up moving out of her mother's house briefly to live with her brother, but that living arrangement, it fell apart pretty quickly Allegedly, after getting into like a verbal altercation with Bart over his drinking and having some loud music on and not turning it down, and it just escalated. She was like 17 at the time, and she was probably like, fuck this, I'm leaving. Yeah. Moving back in with mom, right? So, mm-hmm. where am I here? So, Susie moved back in with her mother on 1717 East Delmar Street. And when Bart was notified about their disappearances, he did make himself available to detectives. And by all accounts, he was cooperative throughout the investigation. He submitted to polygraph tests at one point, and he passed. Now, that 48 Hours episode that I uh, was talking about earlier really paint Bart with a, in not a good light, essentially. Um, And he's been very open um, in interviews. And, like, I think I was telling you this. I was, like, neck deep in Web Sleuths the other day on this, and I was reading. He's on Web Sleuths and interacts on there occasionally. Uh, and I was like reading his things. He's very open with the fact that he struggles with addiction and that he does not have a perfect past and he has had trouble with the law, but that he didn't, he was not involved in this. 
Right. So I, I, I hope that his family, this is his sister and his mother. I want to take him at his word at that. Absolutely. It's probably easier that way. Right. Now, he said on the night that the disappearance took place, he had been out drinking at a friend's place. He'd returned home, uh, but he was alone. So there was no way to substantiate his whereabouts after leaving his friend's house. And, uh, but because he passed the polygraph test, he was kind of ruled out as like a main suspect, but just like everyone else, he's still considered a person of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Don't go far, but you're not under arrest. Right. Okay. So the next suspect that we are, that was interviewed by police early on in this was a guy by the name of Dustin Reckla. And he was one of Susie Streeter's ex-boyfriends. Now, a few months before the disappearance, Dustin and his friend, Michael Clay, they were charged with vandalism after they were caught breaking into a mausoleum. Oh. They had broken in and somehow opened up a tomb and no. so were stealing gold teeth from skulls and then oh sold my- them to a pawn shop. Oh my what? God. They're like the worst people ever. Who does that? When I was, I was uh, reading this to Rob and I was like, victimless crime and he was like pardon me (laughs) i'm so kidding i'm joking but it kind of is but like also gross like it's disrespectful it is disrespectful exactly so they had stolen the teeth were selling them at pawn shops and i guess one of the pawn shops like called it in so they were apprehended and charged but Susie, without knowing it had um driven the getaway car oh no so she was brought in as a witness to give a statement about the whole mausoleum thing and was set to testify when the vandalism charges went to trial. Uh Uh-oh, that's not a good look. Yeah, so both of the boys, after the disappearance, they were brought in for questioning, and I guess Michael Clay, during his interview, said, I hope those bitches are dead. (gasps) Which, dude. Like, I I think these kids are dumb. I don't think that they're kidnappers who could get away with a flawless kidnapping like this that's been unsolved for 30 years. But dude, come on. That, Somebody's just gone missing. Yeah. Why are you saying that to police if you haven't yeah. done anything wrong? Anyways, yeah, they both just... both Dustin Reckla and Michael Clay were given polygraph tests and they did pass. And guys, just so you know, I know that a polygraph test is like as insubmissible in court. And as useful as I don't I don't know what something tits on a bull. There you go. <laughs> so Right? Like, I know that, but this is kind of, this is 1992 we're talking about. There's no DNA. They're working with what they have. There's no DNA in 92? Not to be used in the way that we use it now. They probably had, like, the beginnings of it, but not anything close to what we have now. as intricate. Exactly. Um, So there was no substantial evidence to link them to the disappearance, and while they may have been ruled out as suspects for the time being, again, still persons of interest to this day. Just in case. Just on that list, you know? Um, And then another ex-boyfriend of Susie's was um, a guy named Mike Kovacs. Susie and Mike had broken up in September of 1991 after their relationship took a turn for the worse. It started, uh, or sorry, it was stated in several sources that Mike and Susie's relationship was violent and and that after the breakup, Susie had confided in friends and family that she was actually scared of Mike. Uh So this would lead her mother and Susie to take out a restraining order against him. And it was alleged that Mike beat Susie up, slashed her tires, and harassed her over the phone. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, over the phone. 
Right. Okay. I didn't put that together, but now I am. Uh Thank you. (laughs) So Mike Kovacs is quoted as saying in an article from 1992 in the news leader, sure, we hit each other back when we were first going out. I was only 15. Sure. That makes it okay. (laughs) He was questioned by police, but as far as I can tell, he wasn't considered a serious suspect, but just like everyone else, person of interest. Mm Mm-hmm. The next few people I'm going to talk about, I I only wanted to get into them briefly because they would be a case all on their own. And if I really be like, really went into each of these, this would be like a four part episode and I didn't want to make it that long. (laughs) So I am going to talk, there were a few serial killers slash murderer types kind of running around the Springfield and surrounding areas at the time. Um, Those are who you didn't want to get into? Okay. Well, well I understand they have their own episode. It, it's a very, like, yeah, it would be very long. So the first one I want to talk about is a guy by, sorry, I just got to flick in my notes here, named Steve Garrison. And really briefly, guys, and I might actually cover one or two, two of these guys fully in another episode. But Steve Garrison was looked at, um, and mostly because, now, he was a member of a motorcycle gang, and in 1993, while he was in jail, he told investigators that he had info about where the missing women were buried. Buried. Good? Did I say that correctly? (laughs) I've been training myself. He said he would share this information with police if they helped him get out of jail on the weapons charges that he was in prison for. Wow. Now, he told police that he heard someone confess to the murders while he was attending a drug party. A drug party? Yes. So he told police that the bodies were buried at a hog farm in Webster County. Oh, Um, now they're gone. We all know what happens at hog farms. Right. So I don't know. It said that the judge lowered his bail and he was, the police put him up in a hotel. And I think this is because he was going to take them. To this field, oh, okay. to this hog farm. Yeah, say uh, what? <laughs> yeah. So they put him up in the hotel, from which he promptly fled. Mm. Big shock. Yeah, duh. <laughs> well, while he was out on the loose, he broke into a woman's apartment in Springfield and attacked her. She survived, and after a short standoff with police, Garrison was rearrested. Um, and big surprise, they didn't find their bodies at this hog farm. Uh, he was charged. He's he's ended up serving a life sentence for attempted robbery, sodomy, rape, and a bunch of other things oh all related to that. So to me, Steve Garrison seems like a big bag of shit. Yeah, but not this I think bag he, of shit. I don't think he's the bag of shit we're looking for. Only because right. I think he just wanted to get out of jail and was like, "Hey, I'll give you something." Yeah, right. Makes sense. And he knew that nothing would be ever found at a hog farm, even if there was bodies dumped there that he had no idea about. Yeah. There'd be nothing left anyways. Well, and like like I said, like there's so many tips and so many leads that investigators followed that if I got into them all, and again, there is a really great podcast that does go into all of this, and I'm going to link it in the show notes. It's um, it's called, if you search Ozarks True Crime, I think it comes up, but it is like a long form series on this particular case. Oh, so it's not just one episode? It's not just one episode. It's like eight episodes. Six, oh, I think wow. six official episodes with like four or five um, bonus episodes tacked on of extra things. That's... So it's really in depth. And I didn't want to be here for six or seven episodes. I wanted to give you like the basics information yeah, here. And the like the, the, 
Well, and the most information I could give you in one episode. Sure. So, uh, but yeah, appreciate I appreciate it. Yeah. So um, there were other tips that did come in of uh, bodies being buried in this field and bodies being buried on that farm. And they did go and, and dig. And I think at one of the sites, they did find human remains, but they were really, really old, like extremely old to the so point where like, like this, yeah. this cannot be, this is yeah. like far older. Imagine than they case. like solve another case. What I would imagine is if they took those bones, that maybe it was an old cemetery or something like that. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But in the Ozarks, there's lots of like um, sinkholes um, and that kind of stuff all around. So it's like, who knows where those bones came from, right? Yeah. So the other man that we're going to talk about before we get into the person that, you know, most people believe is probably responsible for this is a man named Gerald Carnahan, and um, he is known for the murder of a beauty queen from Nixa, Missouri, by the name of Jackie jo- Jackie Johns um, in 1985. He had beaten, is believed to have beaten her to death. Oh, gosh. Her body was found in the Springfield Lake, and a tip came into police, uh, a tip came in leading police to Gerald Carnahan. He was a man in town. He was like an eccentric like business owner his family was well known um kind of like a weirdo in town so people were like definitely saw his truck near the scene or they found her car they would end up finding her body in the springfield lake in 1993 carnahan was arrested for trying to kidnap another woman in springfield Mm. um he never was um tried for jackie johns's murder in 1985 until 21 years later when dna from jackie's case was retested in 2006 and he was arrested and found guilty serving life holy in cow now i was reading that and i was like oh well he definitely could be responsible for the disappearance right yeah but when when i was listening to interviews with an investigator that was involved in that case he said if you think about it everything he did was really sloppy people saw him near jackie johns's last known place the reason why the t- the the police got on to him about that in the, like late eighties was because he lied about how he knew her. Like he wasn't somebody that could very cleanly commit this crime. Without so why being couldn't caught. they arrest him though? Um, they didn't have the DNA evidence to link him. They just didn't have. Uh... He's one that I would like to to research a little bit more. But from what I gleaned from what I was looking into. It was that DNA evidence that could like 100% put him behind bars for yeah, life. And yeah. it just, they had to just wait until technology caught up with them. Yeah. More Beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So even though he still could be a personal adventurous in the Springfield 3 case, they just, uh, investigators really felt like whoever was involved in the Springfield 3 and taking these women had done it so cleanly and so precisely that they left no trace of themselves or the women anywhere and were able to do it without being caught for at this point, 30 years, you know? Yeah. Well, I wonder if it is just as easy as going in, covering up their mouths, forcing them to walk out into your car and leaving. Right. We're going to talk about that. Cause I want to hear some of your theories at the end of what you well, think. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> The last person we're going to talk about is a man by the name of Robert Craig Cox. But before we talk about him, we need to talk about another murder that happened. 
On December 30th, 1978, 19-year-old Sharon Zellers disappeared after leaving work at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida. Her abandoned car... I know, right? Her abandoned car was discovered in an orange grove in Orange County four days later. Whoa. In Orange County? Yes. In Disneyland or Disney? Disney World, there's an Orange County in in Disney in Florida as well. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Her body was discovered the following day submerged in a sewage station located close in close proximity to the Orange Grove where her car was found. So her body was was heavily decomposed and she was identified by her dental records. An autopsy was later performed and it was concluded that she died from blunt force trauma to the head, and it was reported that she had received fourteen separate head wounds. Oh, wow. The medical examiner reported that she probably lived 20 to 30 minutes after her attack. Oh. Sad. Now, the law enforcement investigation led detectives to question a man by the name of Robert Craig Cox. Cox and his family were vacationing in Orlando at the time. They were staying at a Days Inn hotel, which was located close to the sewage station where Sharon Zeller's body was discovered. Cox's mother had called the hotel security on December 30th, the night that she went, Sharon went missing, because her son, Robert Craig Cox, had returned to the motel and was bloody around his mouth and face. What? A portion of his tongue had been severed off, and he was unable to talk. He had to communicate by writing. <sighs> then he passed out, and he was taken to the emergency room by an ambulance, and emergency surgery was performed on Cox's tongue. Because it was basically hanging how, off. Yeah. How are you going to get into how he lost oh, his tongue? Yes, we will. Cox made a statement to officers on January 19th, two weeks after his accident, and claimed that he was injured during a fight at a local skating rink. He claimed that he was hit in the face, and that's how he bit his own tongue, causing okay. it to be severed almost yeah. completely off. Now, detecta- detectives would find evidence in Cheryl Zeller, Sharon Zeller's car linking Cox to her murder. Uh, And the state claimed that although the evidence was circumstantial, it pointed to Cox as the perpetrator. Okay. Uh, A surgical assistant from the hospital where he received the surgery to have his tongue fixed. Yeah. They testified that Cox's tongue was, uh, the injury to his tongue was more consistent with someone other than himself Biting, biting off his, his tongue. Ew, like he was trying to make out with her and she bit it off. Oh, probably. He, he claims that he does, he had nothing to do with this. And it's going to be about to get infuriating. So just wait. Oh, um, God, so ready. the reason why they said it was more consistent was because the shape of the bite mark. In versus you, out. Yeah. yeah. So, and it was very jagged. It wasn't like a clean, because you imagine if something hits you, you're going to have a very clean bite. Mm-hmm. It's gonna oh, it's like she was like sawing it off with her. Ugh! Oh my God. Now it would take 10 years to indict Robert Cox for the murder of Sharon Zellers. At the time, Cox was serving nine, a nine year sentence for the kidnapping of two women in Texas. Uh. When they finally were able to, able to indict him for that murder. Holy shit. After a trial, he would be found guilty for the murder and sentenced to death in Florida. His mm. conviction would be overturned on appeal when the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, stating that he was convicted without adequate evidence. So Cox was essentially a free man. What the fuck? So how did, what evidence were they lacking? Or how um, did they indict him in the first place? 
DNA after a while? Well, I think they were like, no, he did it. Like there's, well, what they had found in the car was blood that matched his blood type. Again, this is late seventies, early eighties. DNA is not anywhere near where it is today. And so what his defense sort of argued was that sure it's the same blood type, but a lot of people have this blood type and that could have been anyone. Wow. Sure. Whatever. I, I mean, that's why I could never be a defense lawyer. No. I know somebody's got to do it. It cannot be me. Now, once Cox was released from prison, he would go to live with his parents in, guess where? Springfield, Missouri. Oh. Guess what year? 1992. 1992. While living in Springfield, Cox would find employment at a used car dealership. And coincidentally, it was the same dealership where Stacy McCall's father worked. Whoa. After the disappearance of the women, a relative of Sharon Zeller's would call the police in Springfield and tell them that they should be looking into none other than Robert Craig Cox. So he was brought in for questioning, and of course he said he had nothing to do with the missing women and that he had an alibi for June 6, 1992. He told investigators that he was at his parents' house all night and then the next morning went to church with his girlfriend. Of course he was at his parents' house. They'll always say they're at their parents' house. Of course. His girlfriend at the time was also questioned. She corroborated his alibi. Of course she did. Ride or die. Now let's jump ahead to three years later in 1995. Uh, Robert Craig Cox was arrested in Texas for... uh, holding a weapon on a 12-year-old girl. Oh, my God. And trying to abduct her. No. He was arrested and sentenced to life in prison for aggravated robbery. Good. In Texas. After his arrest, his now ex-girlfriend would speak to Springfield police and recant her initial statement about his alibi the night of Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy's disappearance. That dumb bitch. Sorry, like, I'm just so mad that she would lie in the first yeah. place. Uh, She claimed that Robert threatened her and told her what to say if questioned. And I heard an interview with her daughter who said that her mom was, she was scared of him. Yeah. Okay, fine. If you're being threatened, I get it. I take back the dumb bitch, but still. (laughs) Police would go to Texas to interview Cox again. And he began what can only be described as playing a game of cat and mouse with the cops. He's an idiot. He didn't confess to the abduction of the three women, but he didn't not confess. know what what i mean yes now he would say in an interview with reporter robert keys he said i can tell you i know the three women are dead and the person who committed the crime had experience and they're buried close to springfield and robert keys would say so is that your theory and he said no that's not a theory i just know i just know they are dead i know that what okay he also, so, well, the, sorry, he also refused to say anything else to law enforcement until his mother died. And as of the date of this recording, Robert Craig Cox's mother is still alive. Wow. Yeah. So while the police stated that they take Cox's statements very seriously, they are also very cautious in the case that Cox is just seeking recognition, infamy, yeah. attention, whatever, uh, by having his name associated with such a, like, nefarious case. Notorious. Or notorious yeah. case, sorry. Now, in 2007, one theory did come out, and I think this is a theory about that most people associate with this case. It's been in a few documentaries. 2007, about this. this came out. Yeah. So, wow. um, a journalist named Kathy Baird gave uh, told police that she received a tip that the three women were buried beneath a parking lot at the Cox Memorial Hospital. 
Um, she not claimed in relation to the other. Clocks no, no, it's it's a weird uh, coincidence. Okay. Yeah, not related, <laughs> not related at all. Um, she claimed that the police didn't take her seriously, so she hired someone to bring in ground penetrating radar, which allegedly detected three shapes that could have been bodies. Again, police refused to investigate what they found on the radar. They said it was too expensive to dig up the parking lot, even though the hospital offered to let them do it. Um, but one thing that investigators did bring up was that, you know, like this parking garage that they want to dig up, stay, that this reporter says the bodies are under, wasn't yeah. even built and started, hadn't even like ground hadn't even broken until a year after the women went missing, which means they, and I know you're going to be like, but why, why would that mean that? But it would mean that whoever had them held on to them for a year yeah. before putting them there. And at first I thought, well, no, because what if they buried them first and then mm -hmm. they built the parking lot over top of them, but they would have had to ex excavate the ground. Yeah. They would yeah. have found them. Yeah. So um, it also turned out that the tip, from what I could tell, came from a psychic who could talk to a dog. And the dog what? told the psychic this. Like, Is it that just what the dog like, said? Cinnamon. Cinnamon. <laughs> You've cracked this case wide open, Cinnamon. I don't think it was Cinnamon. <laughs> I don't know. I was very, like, unclear. And I watched um, that reporter, Kathy Baird, who brought this tip to, you know, everybody's attention. She's a bit of an odd duck. She did an interview with Crime oh, yeah. Watch daily or crime watch weekly she uh was it was a very strange interview she wouldn't give really any information wouldn't talk about her i mean obviously a reporter is gonna try to withhold their source but she really wouldn't give much of anything to the point where the the reporter on the show she was on was like well then why are you here like <laughs> literally why are you here if you can't yeah, talk why about are you wasting it, our time exactly like it was very uncomfortable watching it on on that show so uh, but that seems to be, like, the last of, like, the major tips that have come in. And like I said, I, I could go into every single thing, but we'd be here for, like, a thousand yeah. hours. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, 2007 was kind of – but as far as I could tell, based on everything I watched, um, people like Janice and Stu McCall, they're actively still making sure that this case gets out there. They want to find oh, their sure. daughter, even if she's not alive. They want to – they just want to know. It's the not knowing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, Bart Streeter, he's active in some forums. He has a blog. He talks very openly. He wants this solved. And I, and I think the people of Springfield, it's something that's really haunted them for 30 years, right? For sure. And like, has there ever, have there been updated sketch composites of what they would look like now? There has, and I'll post them. They're not much different from what, uh, what their original photos look like, but okay. I, I can, if I, I'll get them and I'll post them on Instagram. But it's just, I know this case is done to death and so many people have covered it, but it's um, one that I've always been interested in Yeah, and have always perplexed me. And I perplexed just, you. Perplexed, like has kept me up at night thinking about, but what about the light bulb? Why is yeah, it that Yeah, honestly, broken? I feel like that. And like he, if he said that he swept it by the alley, just go by the alley and scoop it up. Yes. And it's not clear if they did that or not. I don't know oh. if they did. Um, and there's not really, you can go online. If you go to like Zillow or whatever, you can look at pictures of what the house looks like now. Um, yeah. And I did. I've been on of many tours of that house. Yes. Um, but uh, really nothing has changed in the house, I guess, since then. And the house is like a nice, I don't, it's a nice little home. Um, and like, it wouldn't have been... 
What like what if because the TV was on, right? So what if they both fell asleep on the couch? Mom was on the couch too, or something. Like I just don't understand the mom part, but the guy well, can easily come into the thing, scoop them up, and leave. Just well, like that. so and this is what I was thinking about: is who was the target here? Because mm-hmm. the girls remember they weren't supposed to be they there. Yeah, yeah, they were supposed to be in Branson. So was Cheryl the target, or had somebody followed the girls? If yeah, because could... yeah, maybe the, he was just like at the neighborhood and saw these two girls going into a house late at night and was like, perfect. Right. And then Ted re- Bundy their ass. Remember Robert Craig Cox worked with Stacey McCall's father. And Stacey right. McCall, she's often referred to, or it's often. She's the girl next door type, right? So she's right. Like that but American she, beauty. It, how, how do I say this? It's often. That Stacy was at the wrong place at the wrong time. She oh, definitely wasn't the target. It had to be something with Cheryl or Susie because it had happened at their house. But what if that's not the case? What yeah. if Robert Gray Cox had a liking for Stacy and was following her? Yeah. There's so many things. And I just. We just need again, fucking Cinnamon to open to his big mouth. So it's been 30 years. Cinnamon. I'm sure has left this. Someone who's a medium contact Cinnamon because now that he's a spirit, he can probably talk. Um, the other thing I didn't, uh, I guess so. The other thing, who's that guy? Remember when we were in New York and I kept watching that, that, uh, stupid guy, the Hollywood guy. And he talked to all the celebrities. He was, he talked to all the celebrities. He was like the psychic that talked to all the celebrities. All I can think of is Sylvia Brown. No, it's from not her. Jesus, I hate her. She got so many <laughs> things wrong. Does she? Stupid fingernails. Oh, <laughs> oh, you Didn't you ever hear about? Um, this is so off topic, but when Amanda Berry, she was one of the girls from the Cleveland, um, abduction. Yeah, who was held in that house in in Cleveland, obviously. Yeah. and that she was on Montel. Sylvia Brown was on Montel with Caitlin Berry's um family, and said she's dead. Oh, she's oh, no. She's been drowned. She's been dead for a while. And then, or not Caitlin Berry, Sarah, Amanda Berry. And yeah. she came out. And all of a sudden, a few years later, she escapes. Yeah. So, uh, so Sylvia. Sylvia Brown, <laughs> eat many dicks. Because um, how dare you? Yeah. Uh, that's why, like, I want to believe in psychics so badly. And so many had called in tips to this case. And the police, they did follow up on some of the tips. But I get it. And, you know. I get it from a law enforcement uh, person's and a law enforcement person's perspective that like you just can't because you can't rely on it. It's yeah. not evidence. There's nothing. How do you explain that in court? Yeah. Um, now, one thing that kept coming up is that a lot of people were saying it had to be more than one person involved because how yes. do you subdue three healthy women? Well, that's women? what I think. If they were sleeping on the couch. Rag to the face, chloroform them, drag them out. But, but that's where do... it would have to be three of them. But how and how do you do that without being seen? Dragging unconscious. Well, women because out. it's three in the morning. How many people are really out and about three in the morning? True, but it's not like there's nobody around. You never know. So how would you be so sure that nobody's going to well, see yeah, you? This is where it's bold. And, and so... you'd have to have really good strength if you are one person. You have to be really strong to not like burn out like one and a half bodies off out the door, you know? Right. How are you going to go back and get mom when yeah. you're, you lost all your strength? So one thing that I was thinking of is that 
remember Susie's car was parked in a different spot than normal. Yeah. Maybe somebody was at the house when Susie got home. Somebody that they knew. A friend over? Yeah. They walk in. Maybe this friend is not so nice. Maybe this friend got pissed that they just got cock blocked. Couldn't close the deal before 2.30 in the morning. But then why abduct them all? Well, because a man's ego is quite... No, I don't know. I don't know. Um, And then I was thinking... Who would be at the house at 3 in the morning? Exactly. Uh, It just, it baffles me. So, and then, so like I said, going back to the thing about like, oh, there had to be more than one of them because you would need that to move three healthy women. bodies, yeah. But here's the thing. BTK did it with no problem. He took out like the larger part of an entire family. Just him. Right, right, right. With an unloaded gun. Right? Yeah. All he had to do was show him the, the gun. Um, who else? Like you said, Ted Bundy took down a whole sorority house. Yeah. Richard Speck and the nurses at the, the one group home. Yeah. Well, there's so many of them. So there's one guy in 1999. His name was Kerry Stainer. And he um, actually went to ho- a hotel in Yosemite. He was, um, I think he worked for the hotel maybe. But anyways, he had impersonated like a utilities worker, mm-hmm. knocked on the door of a hotel room told a woman, her daughter, and her daughter's friend that there was a gas leak in a, and told them that they needed to leave, abducted them and murdered them in Yosemite. This was wow. in 1999. So similar to the Springfield 3. And I kept thinking about that case. And I was like, has anyone looked into where Carrie Stainer was in 1992? Because that could have been his first job. That could be a plausible thing. Three in the morning. Get out of your house. Knock on the door. Right. Get out of your house. There's a leak. Well, and here's what I was thinking about the globe that had broken. Uh-huh. That breaks. He comes, Somebody comes, maybe not Carrie Stainer, but somebody comes posing as a concerned citizen, maybe a, impersonating a police officer and says, sorry to bother you. Somebody was prowling around your house. They broke this thing on your light. Um, I need to get you, out so we can Can you come out or can you come out and just, and I can just get a statement from you real quick? Is there you anyone in, in the there with you? keep warm. Right. And maybe, is there anybody in there with you? Maybe they can come out and I can just get a statement real quick just to let, just so I can have in my records that I've talked to you about it. Yeah. And then once they're outside, they don't have their purses. They don't have their clothes. They don't have their shoes. They're outside. They're just, yeah. Get in my car so that I can and then keep the you warm while we investigate the house. Make sure there's nobody inside. Right. Boom. Get in the car and abduct And that's it. why. And that's, and Ooh. because everybody's, and another thing they say is like, obviously it wasn't robbery as a motive because Cheryl had $900 in her purse yeah. that wasn't touched. Now, a lot yeah. of people have said things about the $900 as well, saying, why did she have all that money? Well, it was a different time. Cheryl had. It was a different time. You didn't go to the bank and like, there wasn't tap or yeah. ATMs available. Yeah. So she had that money. It wasn't uncommon for her to have that kind of money, like a deposit for the salon, all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So um, that wasn't unusual to have that much money. But the fact that it was still there shows that whatever the motive was in this was not robbery. Mm-hmm. They weren't there to take the money. So, But that dog saw something. It did. Okay. And so there's Why another, was it so scared? There was another thing about the dog, too, that the dog had been spotted running out like they when they put the dog in the backyard it sometimes could get out and that mm-hmm. a neighbor had seen the dog running around the street so some other people have wondered maybe somebody found the dog and was like hey is this your dog 
And when they came to the door, then they were like, oh, I found your dog. And she's like, oh, yes, that's my dog. Do you want to come in or whatever? And then they're like, no, but you and whoever else is in there, get out. You're getting in my green van. Yeah. Right? Like, But also, what about the caller? What do you mean? The creepy voice. Oh, so that is, like I said, has never been released. And the police actually say, I thought you meant the dog caller. Oh, no. But what about the caller? <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> Clarify. Um, no, so the police said that they don't think that that caller has anything to do with it, that it was a different time. It could have just been kids. However, like I said, they could be holding because nobody's ever said what was actually said on those calls. Right. Somebody could be holding some information. Because what kind of timing time. is it, right? That yeah, like Janelle what kid just is, happened to have been in there. So was somebody watching the house? Yeah. What the fuck? It's what so creepy. Hell? And I don't think we're going to solve this, but I felt um, like I, I was going guarantee to. you we're not going to solve this. However, <laughs> I feel like we are on to something. I felt like I was about to. <laughs> yeah, well, when you told me to have a pad of paper ready, I was like, ooh. Like, <laughs> is it like a murder mystery that we get to actually solve <laughs> no but i felt like i was about to solve it when i was like i was in a reddit feed that it was from like seven years ago i had gone <laughs> back in comments my i got there and i was looking down and like the page numbers were had risen to a point where i was like what am i even doing like who do, <laughs> these people are reddit people they're nobody <laughs> why am i still reading this well no but that's how like the cats guy got solved. Like I people on the so. internet solved these cases. I guess so. The Golden State Killer was kind of yeah. the same thing. Oh, I don't That's... know. I I really hoped that 2022 has seemed to be a year where we have found out a lot of things. We really did. So the boy in the box. We talked mm -hmm. about this in the last episode. Yeah. Um. He was d identified through genetic uh testing. Yeah. And his name is actually, I can't remember his name right now, but it has actually been released. They're not releasing family details just because he has living siblings, apparently. Okay. Crazy. Um, but he's been identified. I just found out recently another missing persons case that's always baffled me. Uh, Brandon Lawson, they found remains that they believe are his. So he had went missing. On ex like, we'll cover it someday. Um, yeah. But it was a very strange disappearance. And they, this year... I think in April, maybe, had found re human remains and clothing. And it's very strongly believed to be Brandon Lawson. So that could wow. potentially have some answers. Uh, the Delphi girls. Those two girls, yeah. They've arrested somebody for that. Uh, the lady in the dunes. They've realized her identity. We'll cover her someday because that's an interesting case. They a really did find a lot of people yeah. this year. Um, and technology is really getting up there. I mean, last year, I think it was, they were to finally identified one of John Wayne Gacy's unidentified victims. No way. And were able to to notify that family that their loved one was, in fact, one of John Wayne Gacy's victims. So who knows? Imagine Maybe... finding that out how many years later. Ooh, exactly. Me. So That's the thing technology, right? Well, and technology is getting to a place where we're able to do some crazy, crazy things and science is figuring Yo, it out. So can we talk about technology, how in San Francisco they like gave permission for robots to be killer cops? I'm pretty sure they took uh, that permission away. Sorry, However, I, have they not still... heard about Isimov's, I, 
Isaac well, Asimov's Law of Robotics? Well, I just want to know what movie did they not watch where this was, or did they watch where this turned out to be a good idea? Have they seen Chappie? Have they seen District 9? Come Any, on. I'm sure there's a thousand and one movies about why this should not happen. But it doesn't, it, they, they got it taken away. So someone in the court was like, wait a minute, I saw a movie about this. Let's reverse that ruling. Yikes. You know what always scares me is that we're going to end up being like the people in Wally. I mean, well, remember the movie Wally, and then everybody's just in a chair and they're living their life through like goggles and they're all really like, yeah, uh, gross. Yeah. But also, back to the robots, the police, um, there's also movies about a bunch of fucking robot police sitting stagnant in a warehouse, and then all of a sudden they turn on and kill everybody. So, like, <laughs> Hasn't anybody, like, at the bare minimum, everyone has seen Terminator. <laughs> yeah. Everyone. So it's just, like, these killer robots exist. Um, Yikes. I don't like it. Happening? I don't like it. I didn't like it when they had those hyper-realistic um, human-looking robots that they the were showing. The ones that, like, jump and, like, doing parkour and shit. I do not like it. It freaks me I out. Know. I really love, there's a show called Humans. It's a BBC, like, sci-fi show. And mm-hmm. it's basically about humans that are like, or sorry, robots that they look very human. Yeah. And they're like uh, servants, like nannies, maids, butlers, whatever you want to call them. And, uh, but they start to become like sentient and they have feelings uh, and they, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. There's so many movies about this. What are they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Yeah. No, I, I know. Believe. So. There's that. Then plus the fucking brain chip that's coming. What? Yeah. He's like starting, like Musk is starting in like six months implanting brain chips. For what purpose? Who the hell knows? For his stupid EI fantasy. Well, just think. So in this case, right, 1992, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have uh, social media location we couldn't share your location with your friends any of that imagine this case would be solved in like a blink of an eye right now now or at least it was a 2022 case at least they would have she just uploaded on tiktok her location 10 minutes ago right right um so they would at least have some kind of a starting point with this they had nothing they had nothing all they know is that the girls at least parked in the driveway and changed their clothes no idea they could have went for a walk after that Right. Well, and it just makes you think of like how, how were like detectives solving crimes in like the sixties and the seventies? I know. Like, what were they doing? Like they really had to work. How many people ended up in jail for crimes they didn't commit back then? Well, that too. <laughs> well, crazy. Anyways, like I said, I didn't go into this thinking we were going to solve it, but as I'm sitting here. I feel like it could be solved by not me. Yeah. But technology. Someone so. needs to reopen that. That needs to be a cold case episode. Cold oh, case yes. files episode. And just is reopen it. Run the DNA. They don't run. have DNA. I they know, but they're going to find some. Like That's what I mean. Like, yeah. Did we ever search this cigarette butt? Exactly. You know? Exactly. well whatever happened to those three lovely ladies i hope that they are either living in in peace peace or living in paradise huh exactly i said i I was gonna say the exact same thing you said really yeah i said well i said living in peace or resting in peace yeah the other so 
Yeah, All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, going through it with me tonight, Rachel. I appreciate you. Thanks for... I appreciate you, too. <laughs> I just don't think we say it enough. <laughs> love you. Oh, love you, too. <laughs> I have a good Christmas episode. Not good. It's actually horrible, but... Oh, my god, like Christmas-themed, so... Like um, we'll have that for next week and hopefully we'll be back the week after that if we can make that work over the holidays we'll see well hopefully we can do one in person yeah hopefully that would Let's be great chat about that maybe a nice new year's episode to throw in there Ooh. midweek all right guys thank you so much if you want to follow us on instagram you can do that at story crime pod and if you want to send an email you can do that at storycrimepod at gmail.com and Buy me a coffee if you want to. Get me going. Keep me awake while I'm web sleuthing my life away and diving What's into the... Reddit. Yeah, yeah, deep diving into Reddit. Yeah. What's the um Christmas coffee? Like a peppermint latte or something? Oh, yeah. I had one of those. A peppermint mocha from Starbucks the other day. Are those day. back at mm. the McDonald's ones are the best because they're like cheap. Guys, well, they have an ice cream right now called hot chocolate with candy cane. What? And like fudge bits, I think if you're in Can- if you're in Canada, it's an our, my it's an our compliments brand. So like Metro um, Food Basics, I, La, not Loblaws, uh, Fresh Co. Can I yeah. tell you the best story ever? Yes. Um, about that ice cream, not that one, but a President's Choice brand. Um, one year about like I don't know five years ago, I went into a Loblaws, and they had a whole freezer case of that ice cream on sale. For guess how much? 50 cents. 25 cents. I got as much as my my freezer could hold. (laughs) You open Rachel's fridge and it's just all ice cream. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? 25 cents for a two liter tub of ice cream? Why? Was it it expired? Like what? No, it was still very much delicious. I checked on the expiry. What I think was they just ordered too much of it and were like, Mm. good God. We need to get rid of this. 25 cents it is. Remember the episode of Superstore? Yeah. And they had all the popsicles and, and um, Marcus sets up the thing in the parking lot. It's just like yeah. a big picture of the parking lot. People are drunk. Yeah. Oh, good so I think that's what the situation was. But I definitely got a few tubs of it. <laughs> and it was delicious. Oh, shit. All right, everybody, take care, and we'll see you next week before Christmas, and I hope everybody's enjoying family time and getting ready for this holiday season. Yay. Uh, We love you, and thank you for listening. (laughs) Bye. Bye.